Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Most weekdays, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, though, we'll be looking back at some notable lives, the inspired and inspiring figures who died this year. In 1938, a 15-year-old Jewish boy named Heinz Kissinger fled Nazi Germany. It was an inauspicious start for a man who'd go on to influence future conflicts. Henry Kissinger forever believed that effective diplomacy could avoid the kind of global conflict that had driven him out of Germany. My life has been difficult, but it gives ground for optimism. I think to inspire the young generation, they need a demonstration of faith in the future. And that can be done. The Economist's deputy editor, Edward Carr, assessed the life of a controversial statesman. For someone who put so much effort into tirelessly presenting his own views of the world, Henry Kissinger is someone who was, I think, surprisingly misunderstood. He's often seen as the realist's realist, the arch exponent of a kind of heartless realpolitik that just looks and calculates foreign relations in in almost inhuman terms. But I think he was someone who had an important streak of idealism. He remains a very divisive figure. I would say that he's at least as well known for accusations of being a war criminal, for tolerating, if not encouraging, the carpet bombing in Cambodia that killed tens if not hundreds of thousands of people, for turning a blind eye to a genocide in Bangladesh because it it didn't suit his diplomacy with China. There's all sorts of charges against Kissinger, and those charges have merit to them. It's just I think they need to be seen in a broader context of a man who thought that his life's work was to keep peace between the superpowers and which I think that goal he succeeded in. America also lost a political titan of a different kind this year. In 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor became the country's first female justice of the Supreme Court. She was a path-breaking centrist who emerged as a swing vote in numerous cases. Justice O'Connor left her seat a generation before her death. She had lived to witness the dismantling of key elements of her legacy as the Supreme Court shifted to the right. 
If there's one name the world has heard as often during the war in Ukraine as Vladimir Putin or Volodymyr Zelensky, it was that of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group of mercenaries. He was once a close ally of the Russian president and known as Putin's chef. But in June, having railed for months against the leaders of Russia's regular forces, he led a mutinous march on Moscow that was abandoned at the last minute. After that betrayal, Prigozhin's fate was sealed. Our Russia editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, reported on the warlord's sudden death. When I heard the news of Prigozhin's private jet crashing with him on board, I thought, well, this is very fitting to the whole Prigozhin saga. It's very dramatic, it's very theatrical, it's very much in the style of Vladimir Putin. But I was also not surprised at all. In fact, we've been waiting for something like this to happen ever since he led the mutiny against Putin two months ago. Putin is a master of payback, but also somebody who believes that revenge should be served cold. So Putin very rarely actually acts immediately after something happens. He always takes time and he does always come back. You know, it is very fitting with his life and career, but it's also very fitting with the system that Vladimir Putin created. And in that sense, you know, Prigozhin was absolutely the flesh and blood of that. It's interesting why Prigozhin came and when Prigozhin came into prominence. And basically, he thrust himself and was allowed to thrust himself into the public view at the time when the Russian army was faltering in Ukraine. He created that myth of alternative force, if you like, and Prigozhin spurred the Russian army. He also deflected attention from the disastrous decision that was Putin's invasion in Ukraine. So he served a certain purpose. And Putin is somebody who thrives on creating rivalries between different factions in his circle, like any dictator does. The point is that Putin likes to do that for as long as the conflicts which he sows remain controllable. What happened with Prigozhin is that the conflict which Putin thought he was completely in control of started to spin out of control. Silvio Berlusconi was Italy's longest-serving prime minister since Mussolini. He dominated the country's politics, but he was perpetually dogged by scandal, including his infamous bunga-bunga parties. The late leader even had a long-running feud with The Economist, who published a cover naming him as the man who screwed an entire country. John Hooper, our Italy and Vatican correspondent, has long followed the statesman's chaotic career. Berlusconi was able to convince an entire nation that he held the secret to their prosperity. He himself had become, at one stage, one of the world's 20 richest men. And the sales pitch on the hustings was really implicitly that he could make the voters rich as well, something that he signally failed to do. Silvio Berlusconi came to be thought of as the nonno, the grandfather, if you like, of Italian politics. One of the many ways in which he was a forerunner of contemporary right-wing populism was in his ability to build a personality cult around him. 
He always had his critics, and I won't shrink from saying that The Economist was very prominent among them, having published a lengthy dossier about his business dealings. His great promise to the electorate was not only that they would be successful, but that he would introduce the kind of liberal revolution that Margaret Thatcher had introduced in Britain. He never did that, and he was the Prime Minister of Italy at a crucial period in the early 2000s, after Italy went into the Euro, when it really needed those structural reforms. Silvio Berlusconi was too busy passing laws in his own and his business interest for that to happen. And Italy today continues to pay the price for that. Magasutu Butelezi was a chief among the Zulus, South Africa's largest ethnic group. But as a political transition dawned on the country, it became clear that he had aspirations for much more. Our obituaries editor, Anne Rowe, reflected on his life. When he was 14, Mangosutu Butelezi was handed a ceremonial spear called an assegai, and he drove it into the ground. In doing this, he was claiming his inheritance because his father had just died. He made quite a few claims that were sometimes queried by other people, such as, for example, claiming to be a prince, when in fact the royal family was very large and most other people of similar standing didn't use the title prince, but he made the most he could of it. What was not in question was that in the years when South Africa was making its tortuous progress towards democracy, Butelezi was by far the most powerful man in KwaZulu, which was a poor rump of a place which had been granted a sort of nominal independence under apartheid. It was a shadow of its former self, but all the same, he was the man who wielded power in it. The Asagai also remained important. It became the symbol of the Inkata Party, which he founded in 1975, a right-wing conservative party. It was also the symbol of the greatest Zulu victory that had ever been, the greatest moment in their history. The Battle of Izandluana in 1879, when a force of Zulus wielding assegais had demolished the British army. And this was made into a film called Zulu in 1964, in which Mr. Butelezi actually starred as the king of the time, the Zulu king, wearing the full regalia of the leopard skin cape and the cowhide shield and, of course, the assegai. And he loved this role. Somewhat later, in 1992, the authorities in South Africa tried to calm the place down by forbidding the carrying of deadly weapons during marches and rallies. And he protested loudly, saying that Asagais were a cultural symbol. They were what Zulus were all about. They were actually what the power of their arms was for. His creed, however, as he always insisted, was non-violence. He was a conservative and one in the mold of Edmund Burke, that is, he rejected revolution, and especially the Marxist revolution proposed by his great political rivals, the African National Congress. He was also a Christian and, as he often said, 
a Christian could not condone violence. He was an active Anglican. He even went to synod. And he was a lover of music. He was a lover of poetry. He had his bookshelves stuffed with biographies of people of which Gandhi was a favorite. And in all these ways, he tried to persuade people that he was certainly no threat. The main trouble with him, though, was that KwaZulu, the region that he was the ruler of, in effect, was simply too small a stage for him. His ambitions were national, and that meant he had to work with whichever group was in power at the time, which meant, much as he loathed apartheid, that he had to work with the white regime. To get that sort of power, however, he had to deal with the African National Congress, the ANC, which was becoming steadily more powerful. He joined with them for a while, till about 1979, in an alliance which was rather fragile because he found the ANC riven with Marxists. And he also wanted to lead this whole alliance and found that he wasn't welcome to do so. Gradually, violence grew worse and worse in the townships. And he decided that he would actually involve the white authorities in training black special forces to root out what he called terrorists and what they called terrorists, by which they meant the ANC working in the townships. These black special forces were known as the Caprivi 200, and they carried out most of the atrocities during the violence which went on really until the election in 1994 and even a little bit before then. According to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up once South Africa had found its way to democracy, it was militant groups aligned with Inkata, Butelezi's party, who had done most of the killings. 20,000 people were killed overall. But Butelezi always objected to that and said... No, it was not him that the ANC had actually instigated much of the violence. So there was no love lost between these groups when finally, after the 1994 elections, Mandela swept into power with two-thirds of the vote and became South Africa's first black president. So Butelezi agreed to join the National Unity Government and he took the portfolio, was given the portfolio of home affairs, which he didn't really care about very much and which soon became a byword for corruption. In 2004, he decided, however, that he would stop serving in the government and join the opposition. It seemed a more natural place to be. And from that point on, he gradually found his power fading. In the elections of 2014, he won only... 10% of the vote in KwaZulu-Natal, which was the new name for KwaZulu province. And he won only a little over 2% nationwide. At his funeral in Ulundi, the old capital of KwaZulu, his mourners and supporters turned out in force, many of them wearing traditional leopard-skin cloaks, carrying the cowhide shields. What was not seen so much, in fact hardly at all, was the assegai, the symbol above all else of Mr. Butelezi when he was at the peak of his power. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. 
If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The world lost many figures in the spheres of arts and culture in 2023, including the legendary singer Tina Turner. She turned a tough life into splendor. I'm happier than I ever thought that life would become for me. So that means that most of my hardships came while I was young and growing up. And in the last days, when normally people suffer from old age and sickness, my happiness came. I am, I'm really thoroughly happy. Actor Matthew Perry entertained millions of people as Chandler Bing in Friends, but he hoped to be remembered for more than the sitcom, including his work helping others with addiction. Friends was huge, and I couldn't jeopardize that as I loved my co-actors, I loved the scripts, I loved everything about the show. But I was also struggling with my addictions, which only added to my sense of shame. I had a secret and no one could know. Ireland lost two path-breaking singers this year. The Pogues frontman Shane McGowan, best known for the unlikely Christmas ballad Fairy Tale of New York, and Sinead O'Connor, perhaps the country's most provocative singer. After shooting to fame covering Prince's Nothing Compares to You, she used her music to protest against problems she experienced in her home country. The job of a singer and a songwriter is to be emotionally open, and we that's what music does. It says the things that there aren't words for that people can't otherwise express. Singer and activist Harry Belafonte adapted Calypso music for an international audience. He won over a challenged and divided America with his tender music. David Bennon looked back on the life of the King of Calypso. Harry Belafonte was a unique presence in 20th century popular culture. He was simultaneously an outspoken left-wing firebrand, a key figure in the civil rights movement, and a beloved mainstream entertainer. If you listen to Deo, the Banana Boat song, sounds like a quite quaint update of Caribbean music, but there was also a lot going on beneath the surface. At one point, Harry Belafonte was not just the most popular black performer in America, but the most popular performer in America full stop, with an audience that was predominantly white. My Lord, what a morning. He saw activism as a duty, a necessary evil, rather than, say, as a source of identity. If you listen, for example, to My Lord, What a Morning, it's hard not to be deeply moved. It's an example of how he could pour a great deal of feeling into whatever he did. On the other side of the world, Japan remembered composer and Yellow Magic Orchestra member Sakamoto Ryuchi. 
In a profound artistic move, he grappled with his own mortality on the album 12, released shortly before he died. Our senior creative producer, William Warren, reviewed the haunting ambient soundscapes of his final release. Sakamoto's latest release, 12, is much more pensive than any of the YMO releases. The dozen musical sketches were recorded by Sakamoto between 2021 and 2022 after a big cancer operation and a long stay in hospital. Listening to the album is almost like peeking into his sound diary. The track titles are simply the dates on which they were composed. The exception being a mid-album Saraband, or Triple Metered Dance. Throughout the album, you'll hear these dark, synthesized drones. Sparse chords will ring out and are left to fade unaccompanied. Seemingly a meditation on mortality, on what sustains and what must decay. Britain was shocked by a brutal assault on a famed landmark. The victim was beloved by locals, often photographed, even appeared in a film with Kevin Costner, and Rowe reflected on its demise. Many gardeners are not too fond of sycamore trees. They're big, untidy, strong, misshapen trees. And the worst thing about them is that they have hundreds of winged seeds that get everywhere possible. They get into flower beds, flower pots, gutters and drains, and they're quite tough to remove. There was one seedling that was bold enough to put its taproot down through the hard dolerite of the Windsill Ridge in Northumberland in northeast England. This is the ridge, almost like a cliff in places, that carries Hadrian's Wall. And once the seedling was established there, it grew over two or three centuries. Originally, there was some company for it up on the ridge. There were apparently other trees there, and it would have scattered its own seedlings about. And with these, it could have held conversations with its roots or its canopy. But gradually, those others disappeared, and a space was created in which this particular sycamore could assume perhaps the most beautiful shape that a sycamore could, with a strong trunk forking several times and going up to a rounded dome. It was a most beautiful sight. And because it was in a dip of the ridge, it was framed by the two sides of it, both the wall and the cliff, and was really quite spectacular. It couldn't offer a blaze of colour in autumn because unlike other maples, its leaves simply turned from green to a crumpled brown. But it was simply the position it had assumed that led visitors of all sorts to make the rather gruelling trip, very steep ascents and descents, over to see it. Sycamore Gap, famous landmark, Adrian's Wall. It was also caught on thousands of ordinary people's phones because it became 
a symbol of the place and a gathering point so that there were birthdays celebrated there, people were proposed to there, there were even marriages there. And when people had enjoyed themselves or had their picnic or everything else they had come to do, they often went off to the twice-brewed pub. There the signature beer was called Sycamore Gap and the beer carried the logo of the tree. But on September the 28th, in the small hours of the morning, the tree was cut down. It had been a stormy night with a full moon, just the right sort of night for mischief, where the locals would not hear what was going on. And what they found in the morning was that the tree was down. It was not technically dead, because the stump was still in the ground and the roots were taking up water. But... The more people inspected it, and it was in a very good state of health, they realized that there was no way the original tree could be replaced. You could never replicate the beautiful shape of the tree, and in any case, it would take two or three centuries before it reached that sort of stage. It had never really been a sacred tree in the style of the trees of the Druids and the oak trees of the past. But it was a tree where people came to find a bit of calm and solace. People came there to scatter the ashes of loved ones and they left stones behind with messages to them. They felt that it was our tree, the symbol of the place. And people were devastated and felt that a hole had been ripped in their hearts by the loss of this tree. It was as if other great symbols of Northumberland, like the Tyne Bridge, had been suddenly taken away from them. They found this loss irreparable. There was a legend that Erisichthon, the king of Thessaly, had cut down a sacred grove belonging to the goddess Demeter. And she, in revenge, had afflicted him with such a terrible hunger that he ended up by devouring himself. In Irish tradition, too, you could not cut an ash or use it for firewood because if you did, your own house would be consumed by fire. Terrible punishments were imagined for those who touched sacred trees. And this was the burden of a lot of the tweets that were posted after the event. One of them read, Beware the wrath of nature, wild and free. And that feeling of something missing was perhaps best expressed by Gerard Manley Hopkins in his poem called Binsey Poplars, which he wrote in 1879 when his favourite trees were cut down in Oxford. Aftercomers, he wrote, cannot guess the beauty bean. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Soul Rivers. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Lorniuk, and our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane. 
We'll be back tomorrow with a cozy edition of the Weekend Intelligence, where we enter the sonic universe of ambient music. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.